Because church, we are in the final chapter of 1 Corinthians. That's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a city in what is modern day Greece. I'll bet many of our Bible reading programs, this is the sort of chapter that we race through. It might be the sort of chapter that mentally we skip. Because what it seems to be is a collage of greetings and praises from what we might think of as B-class Bible characters. That is to say, anyone other than Mary or the Apostle Paul and um, the other apostles and Jesus seem to be these B-class characters who you don't really need to know to understand the story. So many respects, that's true. You don't have to have an exhaustive knowledge of Bible characters to understand what's going on in the Bible. And yet, these closing remarks of the Apostle Paul, they tell us a ton about the Christian life and the gospel. These references to people whom the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church happen to know raises the question, who do you know? Who do you know? among Christ's saints, and in his churches. This question and meditations on it are the sort of things we're going to give ourselves over to today, and it will not be hard to find the gospel in it. So bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we've already come confessing our sins, and our sins include these sorts of oversights sort of lack of gratitude that we often have, Lord, for so many who have helped to nurture our faith throughout our long Christian lives, in the case of many of us. God, many of us have failed to reflect on who we know and who knows us, who's invested themselves in our spiritual growth, and whom we have had the privilege to influence under the same end. God, I pray that we will leave this place with a deeper sense of the bond of the Spirit, not just between us individually and our acquaintances, but also, Lord God, between our church and other churches. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. Amen. You'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to read verses 10 through 19. You can follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prissa greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. 
This is God's word. Trinitas, as I noted in the introduction, here we are, reading this collage of individuals, couples, and families, and churches, from whom and to whom Paul sends greetings in his letters. The first individual that we come across, and I'll, I'll list several, is a man by the name of Timothy. And I want to let you guys know who he is. Timothy was a young man that Paul had met on his first missionary journey, his first extended journey where he went about sharing the gospel with Gentile peoples. Timothy was a young man with a Jewish mother and a Greek father, a Jewish mother who loved God, loved the scriptures, and a grandmother who was of the same mind. Their names were Eunice and Lois. It appears that Timothy's father died when he was young. And therefore, his tutelage in religion and in the faith was left entirely, again, to his mother and grandmother. This young man was raised up in the Lord. He gained a reputation for being faithful. And in his earlier, perhaps mid-20s, when Paul was passing through Lycaonia, he met Timothy and asked the people there for Timothy to be his companion wherever he went. Paul took a sort of paternal interest in this young man, and throughout the scriptures, he describes him as my faithful child in the Lord. Probably Paul's closest single companion throughout all of his labors. Timothy was involved in trafficking letters, providing updates and reports about different churches, and that's what Timothy is about to do here. Paul intends to send him to the Corinthians. Not only that, but in many of Paul's letters, he opens with a greeting saying, from Paul and Timothy. In 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. It's likely that Timothy performed the role of what is sometimes called an amanuensis. That's someone who writes on behalf of another person who dictates. It's altogether possible that many of these letters in the New Testament that are Pauline, written by Paul, were actually dictated by him and maybe written by Timothy's hand. It's clear that Timothy was with Paul when Paul went to prison. Timothy apparently accompanied Paul wherever he went as this individual on the outside waiting on opportunities to meet with Paul and delivering his letters and his guidance to others. That's clear because Timothy's mentioned in two of the prison epistles of Paul. That's Philippians and Colossians written when Paul was in prison. At some point, Timothy himself underwent imprisonment. Read about that at the end of Hebrews. And he developed into an evangelist in his own right. He was formally ordained by a presbytery, we read in 1 Timothy 4.14. And most of all, this man is known for being the recipient of two books of the Bible. First and Second Timothy were written to Timothy, instructing him about how to organize the church in Ephesus. And I would note, probably of most importance for this passage, Timothy was with Paul when Paul founded the church in Corinth. See, the Corinthians knew this young man. I bet after everything I've told you about Timothy, you're thinking, what a cool guy. Wow, it's a companion of Paul. Let me tell you how the Corinthians probably felt about him. They didn't feel that same way because they didn't like Paul, many of them. So they felt like Timothy was Paul's young yes man, Paul Jr. 
even worse than Paul himself because perhaps less polished and less knowledgeable. And therefore, Paul has to send Timothy to Corinth with this admonition. Timothy may be bearing this letter to the Corinthians. He says, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him. But send him on his way. That means take full care of him in peace so that he may come to me. This is but one of the companions of Paul that's mentioned at the end of this letter. But there are more. The next one that's mentioned is a man by the name of Apollos. Unlike Timothy, Apollos is a grown man. He is an Alexandrian Jew. Alexandria was a major city in Egypt, and it was probably the center of all learning and education in the ancient world. And this Apollos, well, Alexandria must have rubbed off on him because he is a theological and rhetorical superstar. This guy, we read of him in Acts 18.24, he was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating that Jesus was the Christ. This man was a debater, he was a teacher, and the Corinthians loved him. They loved him more than Paul. It's funny, but when Paul ministered in Corinth and in Ephesus, God's providence had it that this Apollos followed in his train. This extremely polished teacher followed Paul, and many of you might think that Paul must have been the best, most rhetorically powerful teacher. Not so. The Corinthians felt like Apollos was way better. Paul describes his relationship to Apollos this way. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I planted, I planted these churches, Apollos watered. He came in and he came in with a rhetorical ability to explain the things of God that actually made the Corinthians love him most. And it's funny, Paul reports about this man whom they wanted to be their pastor in all probability, he says, concerning Apollos, our brothers, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now. He says to the Corinthians, you wanted Apollos? Well, he doesn't want to come. But one more character that Paul references Trinitas, sometimes we have the tendency to think of the Christian faith in purely individual terms. What individuals do I know? What great teachers, what pastors, what individual remarkable Christians do I know? But Paul would have us know that one of the basic units of knowledge to be had in the church are not of individuals, but of families. You know, the next group of individuals he mentions is someone called, or a group called, the household of Stephanus. Trinitas, if you did not know this, in the New Testament, the basic unit of conversion in most instances is not individuals who express faith in the Lord, but whole households who become part of the Christian church. This begins as early as Jesus' ministry when he preaches the gospel. A royal official intercedes to Jesus for healing for a member of his household. And after he's healed, it says the whole household believed. A man named Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And after learning of Christ, having this encounter, Jesus says, salvation has come to your household. 
The first Gentile convert after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not one individual, but Cornelius the centurion's household. A woman by the name of Lydia actually gets baptized with her household. The Philippian jailer believes, and he and his whole household are baptized. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue in Corinth, comes to faith in Christ, and his whole household is baptized. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read about Stephanus, whose whole household were the first fruits of Greece, the first baptized unit in that land. Paul tells us that this household was committed to the faith in some overt fashion. In verses 15 to 16, it says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to, to the ministry for the, to the saints. He admonishes them that you be also in subjection to such men. He's talking about a general concept of subjection, where you support some ministry that is going on. We don't know exactly what the household that Stephanus was doing. We know that Stephanus apparently acted as a courier, explaining to Paul the problems going on in Corinth, passing the Aegean Sea between Greece and Ephesus in Turkey. Who knows if they open their home for the church to meet in their home, that would be an incredible service. But they have a hand in the advance of the gospel, this household does. Paul goes on to mention servants. He mentions Stephanus along with two other men, Fortunatus and Achaicus. As men who supplied a report to Paul about how things were going on in Corinth. And he says this, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Maybe you have never considered this, friends. Maybe this sounds too idealistic to be true. But you can derive joy and satisfaction and peace by meditating on the labors of other Christians around you when you yourself can do nothing. If you've never had a season in your life where you were stuck without the ability to be significantly involved in the ministry, you can step back and have your soul refreshed by the knowledge that your brothers and sisters to whom you're connected as one body may be engaged in a profound and active service. These are some of the benefits of reflecting on who you know. The last thing I'm going to mention in this passage is that Paul mentions something else other than individuals and families. He mentions couples. There's a couple by the name of Aquila and Prissa, sometimes pronounced Priscilla, and they're all over the New Testament. This couple met Paul for the first time when he was preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth. They were tent makers by trade, just like Paul, and they struck up a relationship with one another. And it became something awesome and wonderful. This couple came to Christ in the church in Corinth. And in the course of time, they moved across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus, where Paul is now. They went out from this church, and yet this church still knows this couple so that they can send greetings to one another back and forth. There are ministry couples in the world who you undoubtedly know. They can send a greeting from the church that meets in their house to the church that is in Corinth. Maybe you guys might be wondering now, why did Brant tell me about all of these different characters in the New Testament? Is, is it so that I will mop up next time I play Bible trivia? Yes, that is one application. 
but there's much more. Trinitas, the first admonition I have for you today is that we need to be in the practice of celebrating who we know. I'm going to lay out for you in just a moment some names of people you know. People you know who do not go to this church. And I hope you would reflect on this right here. I know that many of you love the ministry of Trinitas Church, but I would ask you to consider what do you love about it? Because one of the things that I've discovered as a minister is that almost no one asks this question when searching out a place to worship. Almost no one asks the question, what other ministers, ministries, and churches will this church expose me to? I have found that that question never comes up in the minds of believers as to what they love about their current church or what they might be searching for in another church. And so it is, most believers could never have a chapter like 1 Corinthians 16 written about themselves because we've made every effort to not know any church but our own, any pastors but those who preach to us on Sunday any ministry couples, but those who are in the boundaries of our own fellowship. Before I expound on some of the people you know, I'm going to give you a basic idea of why it's so important. Strong ties are important, especially for times of crisis. See, the Corinthian church is in a time of crisis, and what do you do when your church is in a crisis and in a mess unless you have connections to other churches. There's a real danger in Bob taking his Bible and his family and just starting a church all by themselves. One of the great dangers in that is they have no connection, no lifeline to Timothy's and Apollos's and Paul's and Aquila's and Priscilla's. No connection to other churches. So when they find themselves in the tragic circumstances of the church in Corinth, they have no lifeline, no one to breathe life into them. I'll note there's an equal danger in just having a bishop, one man who oversees some region, who by his own decision makes all problems go away by his final word. You'll note that Paul never stands up and says, friends, I'm in charge of you, me, myself, and I. Do what I would have you do or you are not of Christ. You have churches connected to churches, churches disciplining churches. What I'm describing is the basic, one of the basic tenets of Presbyterianism, that it is vital for the safety of the church that we have vital relationships with other churches. But I'll have you know something more. It's not just a matter of defense who we know. It is for your joy. Your Christian life will be filled with less joy if you make every effort to know no one but those who are in your own congregation. So let's consider on who who you know. I bet if I spoke the name Mike Kelly, a good portion of you would know who I was talking about. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Mike Kelly before. Many of you know Mike Kelly 
simply on the basis that he was the pastor of Green Lake Presbyterian Church. He's the overseer of the Northwest Church Planning Network, and we would not be a church were it not for the ministry of Mike Kelly. Those of you who are with us in our core group stages, well, you heard about Mike Kelly all the time, and he'd show up from time to time and direct you about what it means to plant a church in the name of Jesus Christ. He was part of a group called our Temporary System of Government. Before we had our current session, our current elders, well, we had Mike Kelly, the elders of Green Lake Presbyterian Church in Ascension, and they helped oversee everything that we do. Early on, some of the initial families to join our church plant, the Criders and the Cooks, some of you know them. They came from Green Lake Presbyterian Church and the ministry of Mike Kelly, and they participated in our church. And although those two families have moved on to other PCA churches in and outside of this state, they brought with them another family, the Gallagher and Trina Wilson family. I know that Gallagher knows who Mike Kelly is because he was raised in Green Lake Presbyterian Church where Mike Kelly ministered to his family through his 20s. Wilson knows Mike Kelly is PK. That's what they called him, Pastor Kelly. PK was his name to those who knew him intimately. They knew him by his face, and Mike Kelly knew them in the same way. Not only that, but Marsha McKelvey, one of our faithful greeters, every other Sunday she's greeting. Right now she's down teaching our kids. She came to Trinitas Church because her sister went to Green Lake Presbyterian Church, and through them they found out about this church, a little closer to home. Michael and Crescent Chaplin, Green Lake PC members, until they transferred their membership to Trinitas. Do you see what a wonderful connection this is? Maybe you didn't know Mike Kelly, but these people did. I bet if I mention the name David Richmond, Reverend David Richmond, pastor right now of Trinity Church, which is the new name of Green Lake Presbyterian Church since they moved to Ballard, This pastor is overseeing, as we speak, the membership transfer of David and Sarah Weber to Trinitas Church. You know these pastors. I bet if I mentioned the name Nathan Hitchcock, some of you would know who I was talking about. He happened to be my pastor prior to going into the ministry and getting ordained and planting a church. He's the pastor of Ascension Presbyterian in Edmonds, our closest PCA church to the West. You know this name. He baptized three-fourths of the Bosserman children. One was not with us yet, so I had the privilege of doing that one myself. And if you know Wes and Carrie Kaminsky, you know that they joined this church plant from the get-go due to their prior connection to the ministry of Nate Hitchcock. Often, we have had the Hitchcock girls in our nursery on various occasions like Christmas Eve services and congregational meetings where we want all of you here so that you can be a part of that meeting. This is just a small list of who we know. Maybe some of you have heard the name of Pastor Eric Irwin. He's the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Issaquah. And if you don't know him, I know who does. Debbie and Harry Otaguru. They know him. Because he was their pastor before they moved up to the Mill Creek area and transferred membership to Trinidad. 
Have you considered who you know? We've made every effort as a church to expose you to these different ministers and ministries. Our third annual men's retreat speaker was none other than Pastor Eric Irwin of Covenant Presbyterian Church. So that you would hear a different ministry and a different preaching style than mine. Some of you may not know the name Pastor Brian Douglas of All Saints PCA Church in Boise, Idaho. But I know Matt Cheney knows that name. And I know that Jenny and Karen Cheney know that name because he was instrumental in the life of Matt Cheney. And when Matt became a member of our church, it was a blessing with the blessing of Pastor Brian Douglas. Friends, I'm not just naming names to name names. See, I'm naming names so that you can all say in your mind that if things suddenly went sour at Trinitas, you would know who to call. If Brant all of a sudden got up behind the pulpit and says, you know, I'm not just a Bible teacher anymore. I'm actually an inspired prophet of God. I get direct revelation from the Lord and I've got all these new things to tell you, things not written in this book. And if it so happened that Tim and Scott and Tom Bosserman said, and we all agree, Brant's the prophet now, you'd know who to call. Not only that, friends, but it's so important that you see that there are a variety of sorts of ministers and ministries. It is so important that you understand that not everyone preaches like I do and I don't preach like everyone else does. And the the whole tone and flavor of a church may be fully Christian and yet different. I'll tell you one little story. After our second men's retreat, Pastor Rob Rayburn, one of the famed ministers in the PCA, pastor of our, one of our biggest churches, one of our oldest churches, a ministry of several decades, came and spoke at our men's retreat. And I will tell you one thing right now, it was awesome. It was so awesome that while we were walking to the fire pit, one man who no longer goes to Trinitas felt the need to take me aside and tell me how much better a minister Rob Rayburn was than me. I've had one of those Apollos experiences. How much more polished and incredible at communicating he was than I was. And it was so good and healthy, despite what might have been the lack of sense for the time and context and manner of telling me that. This is a real part of the Christian life, friends. I want you to celebrate who we know. Friends, we don't just know other ministers, but we've actually given our congregants to other congregations, and it's our joy to do so. I know some of you know Sam and Ashley Rose Waltner. Ashley Rose, party planner extraordinaire, planned several events for our church. Now, congregants, membership transferred to Christ Church in Bellingham. You'll notice one theme here. There's this sort of exodus northward, no matter what, like we get people from the south and then they leave to the north. Everybody's just leaving Seattle, apparently. Not only them, if you were to relocate in Montana, anywhere near Bozeman, Montana, Paul and Cindy Cook, they've taken up residence there and they're members of our PCA church in Montana. Friends, we've had incredible relationships with other churches. Michael Morales, I don't know if you know this, our music guy for about three or four years did music at Trinitas in the evening and he did music in the morning at Crossroads Lake Stevens. We shared 
we shared these tools of ours. Most recently, you would know the household of Nathan and Kelsey Chambers. Most recently, we have taken this pastoral assistant that we had, taken him through the process of ordination, and now he is the ordained minister and pastor of Wiser Lake Chapel. Very interesting place. They're part of the CRC, Christian Reformed Church. That's like the Dutch version of Presbyterians. But their denomination's gone a little bit wild to the left, and so they want a PCA minister. (laughs) That's kind of strange. Who knows? Maybe they'll be PCA someday. We have people whom we've given. Not unlike Aquila and Priscilla who left the church in Corinth for Ephesus. Friends, we not only have different men of God who minister in an ordained capacity and families who have followed them, but we have wonderful, wonderful women outside of this church that you have all been exposed to in one way or another. Most notably, perhaps, Anna Hitchcock of Ascension Presbyterian Church has helped to plan the last two women's women's retreats. Many of you have met her. You know of her ministry. In fact, the speakers at our women's retreats have frequently been from other PCA churches in the area, from Cindy Rantle, the wife of the pastor of Bellwood in Bellevue, Rachel Palander, the pastor's wife of our PCA church in West Seattle, all the way through Bethany Robbins, another pastor's wife, and Alfreda Moore, ruling elder's wife. You may not be aware of this, but several of these women, Rachel Palander, Bethany Robbins, Alfreda Moore, have counseling ministries. And different women in our church, through those connections, have built strong relationships and even received wonderful, deep, and enriching counsel from these women. See, These special bonds that go outside of our church remind you that there's a bigger church than this church. You need to know that the body of Christ does not just meet in these four walls on the Lord's day. And you know that most by knowing people outside of this congregation. Friends, we don't just know lovely women, ministers, lay Christians from these other churches that we have given to and taken from, but we also know whole churches I don't know if you noticed, but every single Sunday at the end of the service, we pray for whole entire congregations other than our own. We do that because we want to live in the world of the New Testament where we really have these vital relationships with others. We've done joint services again and again. Our first formal service was with Bellwood in Bellevue where we baptized the entire child portion of the Zion household. Since then, we have done Christmas Eve services, Good Friday services, Reformation Day services, other joint services with Exile Prez, Crossroads Lake Stevens, Ascension Edmonds, Hope in Bellevue. We probably wouldn't have Michael and Kirsty Rath if we didn't have such a relationship with the late Exile Presbyterian Church. We also have done many joint retreats so that you can just spend time with other believers than the people in this room. Our connections go well beyond the PCA. There are other denominations that are a little bit more like us than others and that we have historical connections to. Many of us in this church know about the Acts 29 church planning network, have strong connections there. 
the Burns family, and the Montangs family. They came from Mars Hill Church before they came to our core group. Several of us, including the Elder Bossermans, us, the Webbs, the Moraleses, they came from Damascus Road Church, where my cousin-in-law, Sam Ford, is the pastor. And when we go out and do the church at Planned Parenthood, we do it, especially with several of these other Acts 29 churches, which have taken up a leadership there. Our second women's retreat speaker was Kaylin Ford. That's my cousin, the wife of Pastor Sam Ford at Damascus Road. We have connections to the CREC. That is the Christian Reformed, or excuse me, the Community Reformed and Evangelical Churches. The Hedgecocks and the Throwers came from a CREC church, very much like the Presbyterians, and we continue to have a rich relationship with them. They host an event called Heidelfest. This year, via Elder Tim Zion and uh, Deacon Tony Farrell, we actually sponsored a keg at Heidelfest. And I will have you know, that Tony Farrell is the reigning pumpkin toss champion of Heidelfest as well. You take that to the bank. Men or Mark. Friends, I think sometimes when I get to the end of a list like this, and we could have actually gone on and on and on, there's kind of a lackluster reply sometimes. Wow, I guess that's, that's great. It's kind of like a young man who goes out looking for a girl, likes a girl just because she's hot, and then when he finds out that she actually has a really good relationship with her parents and cultivates other relationships well, he's like, ah, and that's great too. When in fact the longevity of your relationship and the quality of your relationship has so much more to do with those things than that external appearance that hooked you. Trinitas Church, I want you to know that this isn't just a, hey, That's great. What it really means to be part of the body of Christ is to cultivate rich, healthy, deep relationships with other churches and the body of Christ. And I ask you, what do you love about the church? What are you looking for? I hope it has something to do with the ability to celebrate who you know. Second thing I want to tell you today I want to admonish you and encourage you to celebrate something as seemingly dry and insignificant as the work of the presbytery. Do you know what the presbytery is? It is all of the ruling elders and ministers in the greater Northwest area who meet together to help solve problems in churches, to discipline ministers and elders when they get out of line, to vet and to make sure that any new minister we ordain knows the gospel and preaches it with conviction. To make sure that we're bound together, helping to finance other mission projects. Friends, the onus for disconnected Christians lies chiefly on ministers who are content to have disconnected churches. I want you to imagine for just a second, what if Paul said, you know what, Corinthians, I don't care what Peter or Apollos or Timothy or anyone else says. I'm in charge of you. You got to do what I say. Shut all of that out. What a different church we would have in history and in the present. 
What if Paul had simply said, you know what, Corinthian church, it doesn't matter even what I say. It really only matters what Peter says. He's the supreme pontiff. He decides everything. There's no need. There's no need for a Timothy or an Apollos, a Sosthenes or others to weigh in on these controversies. We would have an entirely different church. Friends, I hope you're excited when Scott Hedgecock usually gets up and gives a report on Presbytery. And many of you feel like that's just some sort of formality when he gets up here and does that. I assure you, it is not. I encourage you, do not ever let this session of this church, that's the leadership of this church, go silent, quietly becoming more and more absent from Presbytery. We could do that, you know. Just like when people silently disappear in church, ministers can silently disappear from presbytery, no longer having those connections, no longer celebrating them, and that is always a bad sign. It's a dangerous sign. I have friends who worship at a church, a rather big church in the area that used to be affiliated with the Nazarene church. Frequently, over the last decade, they would notice at the bottom of their church publications in the smallest legal print ever, a member church of the Nazarene Communion of the Northwest. He noticed one day that that little line disappeared. No announcement, no declaration, no sharing with the church that their connection to their greater denomination had been dissolved. Guess what? No matter what that church does now, there is no party who can speak into their world when things go sour, weird, or sideways. I hope you do not take it as a mere formality when we report on our relationships with other churches. We need them to be safe. We need them to share in the joys of others. I have one final admonition. This is my third admonition. It's about how we go, how we come, and the gospel itself. How we go and how we come. See, here's the thing, friends. Coming and going was a reality in the New Testament church. We just read about Aquila and Priscilla who had left the church in Corinth, moved to Ephesus where they were believers, and later in their lives they're going to move to Rome and have a ministry there. They've moved three times. Coming and going is going to be a reality in your lives too, and in this church. People will come and go from here, and how we do that has everything to do with the gospel. Let me explain to you some unhealthy manners of exit, which I would say are the normative manners of exit and arrival. The first and single most popular way to leave a church is by out-and-out disappearance. It's the Houdini method, the illusionist method. Once they were here, and now they're gone, and no one can explain it. The method of disappearance is preferred, I find, because nobody wants to have the strange conversation of saying that they're leaving. And usually they harbor some resentment that they'd rather not discuss. And so they're gone. I'll bet people in this room, many of us, have just disappeared. Disappearance isn't a great way to leave, but it's slightly better than uh, the burnt bridge method of leaving. And it goes something like this. You leave with a parting word. 
Letting the church leadership or even maybe the greater church all the things, let them know all the things that you don't like about them, their heirs, how they lack, and what you just plain didn't like. I'll mention this. I've seen this carried out many times. I've never seen an invitation for the reverse to take place as well. Like, hey, what are my errors? How have I gone wrong? And what do you just plain not like about me? Never happened. There is this incredible capacity that you might not consider and even power that one has when in the position of non-leadership to simply voice complaints and go. Friends, there will be times in your lives where perhaps a church succumbs to overt heresy and supreme negligence and they need to be told where they went wrong. But in fact, more often than not, it's rather petty things that dominate these bridge-burning exits. Pastor Mike Kelly, he actually tells an incredible story in this regard. I'll just tell you real quickly. Pastor Mike, I mentioned, pastor church, Green Lake Presbyterian. He actually had a congregant disappear, him and his whole family. This congregant went to University Presbyterian Church down the way. Back in the 90s, was a bit more conservative and In any case, he went to this new church and heard a sermon where he felt really convicted for how he left Green Lake. And so, six or nine months later, he calls up Mike Kelly. Calls him up and says, Mike, I really did you wrong the way I left the church. Just disappeared. You forgive me for that? Mike was amazed. You never get phone calls like that. Very, very abnormal. Mike said, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. And then the man said, but let me tell you, Mike, your preaching never really worked for me. And Mike said, thank you very much, and hung up the phone. <laughs> the man figured out that just disappearing was a bad idea, but he launched straight into the Burt Bridge approach. My goodness. Maybe just to thank you for your general ministry, and I've moved on. No, could not do it. And this leads to the worst of all approaches, which I call the flamethrower approach. It's leaving and then roasting some ministry publicly on social media or to everyone you talk to. This has become an increasingly popular method, by the way, to uh, exit and to come and go. And um, you'll note that, um, once again, churches never have the same reverse freedom. Can you imagine if churches uh, began to flamethrow the flamethrowers online? The individuals who are hurling these grenades, they began hurling them back. I mean, it would seem pretty petty, and that's why it never happens, and it shouldn't probably happen. You know, imagine if that had happened in this instance here in 1 Corinthians. Imagine if Paul, when mentioning Aquila and Priscilla, said, By the way, Aquila and Priscilla, although they lit you up on Facebook, they send their greetings to you from Ephesus. Probably not. Probably not. Trinitas, I want you to know that as a leadership in this church, we're really committed to healthy exits and healthy arrivals. See, we can't control how anyone leaves. We can admonish. But when we receive new members, it's a really big deal to us how those members have left their church. It's a big deal to us that they've done it in an orderly and respectful fashion. Otherwise, we just stand ready to be uh, flamed ourselves, right? And I want to tell you something about the witness of your elders. These men, not one of these elders has left a prior church by ghosting or flamethrowing. It's a really big deal that that's not how they've conducted themselves, and it's a big deal for the leaders in this church. 
because they loved the church and they left their churches with great, strong relationships. That's why the first retreat speaker at the men's retreat was a man by the name of Gary Shavey, an Acts 29 pastor, whom all of your elders but one stood under as a congregant at one time. We never would have had that man as our speaker had we sent grenades his way. Many of you might be asking, what does a healthy exit and arrival look like? I'll tell you. It's right here in this passage. It looks like showing gratitude and leaving with a blessing. Turn to us. I just want to say this. Whether you go to a new church across the state or outside of the state or even a different church local that just is different than our own, you know what we'd love to do? We'd love to have a service where at the end of it, we lay our hands on you and pray for you and send you out with a blessing. With a blessing. That's how we like to see you go. Guys, this has everything to do with the gospel, and I'll briefly explain how. Every single Sunday we preach that Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me, bore our penalty on the cross, and clothed us with his obedience, his righteousness, so that when God looks at you and me, he says you're perfect in Christ. What's wonderful about this news is that we all know we're not perfect and we're still sinners. That means right now we are loved as sons and daughters by God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We are approved in his name. Though we are sinners and imperfect in ourselves. And let me tell you something. You cannot go on for any length of time believing that gospel about yourself and denying that same brotherly love to your brothers and sisters and to neighboring churches when they have failed. You cannot ghost the bride of Christ. You cannot torch the bride of Christ except to the detriment of your own assurance of salvation because as you keep saying, these people over here are imperfect. They don't deserve my love, my fellowship, or my friendship, or my brotherhood. It is just a matter of time before you go, wait a second, I'm imperfect and I don't deserve their love, their brotherhood, their fellowship, or their kindness, or God's either. We proclaim the gospel in how we treat one another. The gospel is not that Jesus loves people like me who find the worst in others before they find the best. Good grief. If that's who you think Jesus is, you've turned him into a demon and it's not going to be long before you find him in your mind thinking he only sees the worst in you. So I want to give you all a caution, friends. Ask yourself if you've ever found yourself saying things like this, whether about celebrity pastors or about churches. I can't trust John MacArthur anymore because he said this. I hate Tim Keller now because he supported that. I don't like this church and will never set foot in it again because they have the wrong view of spiritual gifts. And I don't like this church down the street because they lack this ministry and they lack these sorts of leaders. And next thing you know, you don't like any church. I challenge you to ask yourself this question. If you have completely torched a church because of one foolish thing a pastor said, ask yourself this question. What if we heard how you spoke to your wife last night? Would any one of us want to have anything to do with you? If you find yourself just torching whole ministries and leaving them like dust behind, 
Because there's something you didn't like about them. What if we saw all of the sorts of decisions you've made and they were published online in small snippets for us to make an evaluation of your character? Friends, I would just want to call you brothers and sisters if we proclaim our belief in the gospel. Many of us in this room have leaders and friends and whole churches whom you've left for dead. You've just left them for dead. And if a letter were written from Paul on your behalf to them, it would say, send no greetings at all from this individual, this family. Because I got none. Many of us are essentially saying to other churches and brothers and sisters, I'll see you at the resurrection. And until then, I want nothing to do with you. This isn't the gospel. Let's celebrate the ministries that people have done in our lives, though they were imperfect. Let us maybe even make a phone call to send a greeting of gratitude to people, maybe, whom we've left for dead. So that we can honestly say that the gospel preached in 1 Corinthians, which has these practical fruits we read about today, is a gospel that we believe and a gospel for us. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we thank you so much for your church. Not just this church right here, but your church universal. We thank you for the many churches who have invested in us, in the PCA, and in other Christian denominations. We thank you, Lord God, for the individual contributions that lay Christians, couples, individuals, and families have made in our own spiritual development. And we repent, Lord God, for just how little we have made of them and how little we often make even of one another. May we be overjoyed. May we live vicariously through the ministries of those whom we knew in days past and the ministries of those whom we know right now well beyond our church. Lord, may we be like Paul taught us to be in 1 Corinthians 16. In Jesus' name we pray, by your Holy Spirit, amen.